0: And thank you for tuning in to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, And with me again today, despite calls for his resignation, is Max Frost. <laughs> Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me back. You stuck it out. Yeah, I did. Very Ralph Northam-like of you to <laughs> avoid
1: the calls of chill resignation. With, let's, let's chill with that. <laughs> I, I stand by my guns. <laughs> if, you, if you're if you
0: wondering what we're talking about there, so, uh, we've received some comments that, or <laughs> Max received some comments <laughs> that he should resign on a recent National Interest article that he wrote. Listen to last week's episode if you, if you care to. Anyway, we're joined today again by Ryan Berg. You might remember him from back in March. We interviewed him when we talked about the election of right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, but now fresh off the news of a new left-wing resurgence in Argentina. We wanted to get his take on what that means for Argentina, America, and the future of Latin American politics more generally.
1: Uh, Dr. Berg holds a PhD in political science from Oxford, um, and also, two master's degrees, one in political science, one in global governance and diplomacy, both from Oxford. He was a Fulbright scholar in Brazil. He does a lot of different work on Latin American politics and relations with the U.S. So, we think we had a really interesting conversation with him. There's a lot to talk about. And without further ado, here is Dr. Berg.
0: Ryan, thank you for coming back on Banter.
2: It's a pleasure to be back with you guys.
0: So last time we chatted with you, we talked about the rise of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and it seemed like the right was on the march throughout the region. And now we're talking to you fresh off the news that Argentina looks set to elect a left-wing president in October. So let's just start with the particulars here in Argentina. What happened with their
2: recent primary election, and why is it important? Sure. So on August 11th, Argentina had its primary election, and the incumbent president, Mauricio Macri, was totally trounced um, by about 16 points, 48% to 32%, uh, when the pre-election polls actually showed uh, a statistical tie uh, between the, the wow. two. Um, and Macri has now, until October 27th, to shore up his position, to essentially pull out what would, what would amount to a, an, a, an electoral miracle to make up for those 16 points. But I think it's highly unlikely that he will and the 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 fact is, or the the reason is that, um Argentina has primaries where, uh, many of the parties have already selected their candidates, and so it's not really a primary in the true sense that you see the candidates who are then going to run on the on the on the main tickets. These parties had already selected their candidates, and so basically it was it was like um, an early version of the of the election. Um, on the other side was uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner as the vice presidential candidate, and Alberto Fernandez as the. Uh, as the Peronist uh, main presidential candidate. Um, and in the the wake of this election result, you saw the stock market crashing in Argentina, runs on the peso, a move into dollars, economic uh, uncertainty in the face of what could be a return to power of, of the Peronists in Argentina.
1: So, the, I mean, Argentina is an economic basket case, right? And then, well, I think they've had more IMF bailouts than any other country. The that sounds right. The recent one was the largest one. Fifty-seven ever. billion dollars. Yeah. So, what what is the core of the economic issue in Argentina?
2: Yeah, Argentina is is our, uh, Latin America's third largest economy behind Brazil and, and Mexico, respectively. Um, and when uh, Mauricio Macri came into power in two thousand and fifteen, he was he was really one of the first conservatives um, in Latin America after a long. Uh, center left um, uh, run in, in, in electoral victories there and there was a lot of promise with uh, with him coming into power his slogan was even cambiemos let, let's change um, let's actually open up our, our markets let's let's have some deep uh, some real deep reforms um, and the problem is he's had very mixed success. And some uh, some external headwinds that he's had to deal with. So, for example, inflation has rose above fifty percent. It's one of the highest uh, rates of inflation in the world, um, outside of places like uh, Venezuela. You you never really want to be in the company of Venezuela when it comes to any sort of economic statistics. Um, in the first quarter of this year, there was a, something like a five percent contraction um, under under Macri's watch. Uh, public debt grew uh, to eighty six percent of GDP from from fifty three. And then there was this fifty seven million dollar bailout from from the IMF. IMF, which of course many Argentines... uh, of which they're very wary because they remember IMF bailouts as being something you know sort of strict or constricting on on their country. The last time there was a major IMF bailout, uh, it coincided with a four or five year major depression in Argentina. Um, stuff that is still continuing to this day. Fights over bonds and and repayment and so forth. And so I think a lot of Argentines were very excited to see Macri come in in 2015, and unfortunately, some external and some domestic stuff have prevented him. From from making the the really deep reforms that he needed to make to really open up the Argentine economy and get growth moving again, and now he's running in a in a in a very difficult environment.
0: So what has he done wrong? Has he followed the sort of standard center right economic playbook of? Lower tax. I mean, usually when you think of that, you think they're going to come in, lower taxes, try to control inflation, encourage foreign investment, cut government spending. Uh, cut government spending. Has he ju- has he done that, and it just hasn't worked, or has he run up against other external issues?
2: Well, he's come up against some domestic pressures in the in the in markets. Uh, he's had very high um, inflation rates that he's had to deal with. He's had high uh, public debt that he's had to deal with. He hasn't been able to get it down as low as he wanted to. Some of the social programs that he promised to reduce poverty, for example, um, one of them was called Pobreza Cero. He wanted to get poverty down to zero or close to zero. Didn't end up working out. Initially, poverty uh, decreased in Macri's term. It ended up increasing now towards the end, towards the time when he began his reelection campaign. It was something around 26 percent. Um, during that initial decrease, and now it's uh, it's up over thirty percent. So there's been a recent increase in poverty. That's also not a good uh, thing for him to be running on. But why can't the infl-
0: like the inflation? I think is at fifty seven percent or something. Some I, just, I read?
2: I've read between fifty four and fifty seven. So I,
0: I might have the maybe I just have the economic history misunderstood. But I, I mean, I always the story that we hear that the U.S. had pretty rampant inflation at the end of the 70s. And then Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan came in and they decided to just increase interest rates, induce a recession, but they got inflation under control. Is that possible in Argentina? Like, wh- Why is inflation so high? And
2: is like, can't mockery do something about that? One of the things is that Argentina hasn't had a sound central bank in a, in a long time. And so, you know, central banking policy in Argentina has been... Uh, used less than independently in the past, has been used for expansionist fiscal policies under under certain presidents. And so, Argentines on the whole, I think, are are unwilling to accept the pain that comes with you know opening up with their markets, stabilizing their currency, like you mentioned, Matt. You know, pulling a pulling a Volcker. Um, and and really just crushing this inflation. I think in general, Argentines like the idea of a of a free society, free economy. But they've gotten quite used to a lot of subsidies, a lot of market intervention, um, a lot of programs that, in the long run, the government can't afford. Um, but the but they don't want to give up uh, in the in the short run. I mean, is there no sense though among the Argentine people that
1: when this when the Peronists have been in power, bad things have happened? Like, I mean, to me, to me, it sounds almost like you know Greece like that's kind of what comes to mind when i hear about this it's like they don't want the government to cut spending they don't want to have to tighten their belts and they don't want to deal with the economic the short-term short-term economic cost of that but the long-term long-term economic cost of the alternative are vast and perpetual poverty and unemployment and we should
0: say peron for listeners that don't know, also, kind of like myself, I know a, not a ton about this, but Perón was a left-wing dictator, right, in Argentina that resulted in just economic catastrophe. So how, how is the party that is known as Peronist doing well? Well, what, was he a dictator? Yeah, but correct me on that, because I you know better than I do. Less than fully democratic, let's say. <laughs> he, he,
2: was he, he like a left-wing Pinochet, though, or how does he relate to... I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily compare him to Pinochet in terms of his uh, in terms of his authoritarian tendencies. There is still a fondness in Argentina for, for both of the Perones, uh, Juan and uh, and Evita, but you know he definitely had some uh, less than, than democratic tendencies. When it comes to the party that bear his na- bears his name, the eponymous party that bears his name, we have to remember that in Argentina there's a saying that El Peronismo abarca, uh, abarca todo, so. Peronism covers everything. It's a very wide, big tent party these days and has become sort of ideologically um, amorphous. It's difficult to tell uh, what exactly this party stands for other than generally speaking, something on on the center left. So, something I forgot to mention in my original answer about what happened in the election is that the the previous president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who ruled before Mauricio Macri, many expected her to run as the presidential candidate for the Peronist party. She actually surprised many by stepping back to the vice presidential role and picking a largely unknown figure who was the chief of staff during her husband's administration, which preceded hers, as her Peronist candidate for president. Now, it remains to be seen how much she's actually going to control the ticket from behind the scenes, but at least nominally speaking, she's the vice presidential candidate. And I think part of Makati's downfall is that he was planning to run against Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner as this sort of polarizing figure. He could be the one who, you know, united the country, provided that change again, even though change wasn't going as well as he had hoped it would. He could still count on the fact that she's a pretty polarizing figure and is on the far left of the of the Peronist wing. So it remains to be seen how independent this gentleman, Alberto Fernandez, will be as president if he if he wins in the october uh, general election um, how much she will control things from uh, from behind the scenes and where exactly he fits in on the ideological spectrum because again peronism is extremely wide as a as a big tent political party in argentina so i am mean, more broadly than argentina
1: something that's kind of interesting to me is it seems like in, throughout latin america you kind of know have a maybe this is the wrong way to see it but kind of a split between right-leaning and left-leaning there's kind of a Stark ideological split across all of Latin America, right? Where you have in Brazil, obviously Bolsonaro,
2: but then in Mexico, um, what's? Operador, right? Yeah, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, yeah, otherwise known as AMLO. Okay. Yeah, and then well, and Spanish accent is not. <laughs> we can call. <laughs> Go back to call, Colombia. Oh. We can call him AMLO. It's AMLO. AMLO. It's to and then him Duque, him.
1: Duque in Colombia, and everything that's going on here in Argentina. It just it seems kind of interesting, almost like an, not an extension of the Cold War, but you still have this whole ideological battle going on across the, across the region. Do you see it that way at all, or is that not?
2: Well, I think Latin America is a region with vibrant political parties and plenty of, of political parties of different persuasions. I'd like to back up to, let's say the, the mid-2000s when it was a completely different situation than what, than what we have now. It felt very much like the left was resurgent or ascendant. There was something called the uh, the Alba countries, which were were four countries uh, um, aligned in the region for um, an alternative uh, left-wing vision of of what the Americas could be, named after Simón Bolívar, of course, the the, the famous liberator of the continent. That group or that alliance consisted of Nicaragua, Venezuela, um, Ecuador, and Bolivia Mm -hmm. formally. And Argentina, under Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, was often um, sort of a fifth ally country, not formally part of ALBA, but usually voting for it in regional fora, like the, uh, the Organization of American States. Now you have a situation that's much different. You have a lot of those presidents um, either on the ropes, such as uh, Maduro in Venezuela or Daniela Ortega in, in Nicaragua. Uh, Rafael Correa was, was thrown out of office in, in Ecuador, um, and a new president who is nominally center-left there. But you know, very much acting uh, as an ally of the United States has taken over. Bolivia is very quiet these days, and so I don't think that we're ready to say that the region is you know undergoing this complete shift back to back to the left. I think it's a it's a mixed bag now. Um, there was you know there was a period of time there with those ALBA countries resurgent that you know felt like there was a left feel or left lean to to the region. Then there was that brief moment of time where, he, as you mentioned, Maxi had Duque, you have Mauricio Macri, you have the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, and, and, uh, and a couple other presidents, for example, uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski in, in mm-hmm. Peru. Um, there was a very sort of right... Uh, uh, Sebastián Piñera in Chile, there was a right sort of resurgent feel. And now it's kind of becoming a mixed bag again. Uruguay is under a center-left president. Mexico is now under a center-left uh, populist president. Um, Argentina is probably about to head that direction. So it's very much a mixed bag, but I'm not yet ready to say, you know, this is a this is a fundamental uh, regional shift.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just like Europe where you have center-left parties in power someplace, a center-right elsewhere. And I'm more curious, though, why isn't South America more of just an economic powerhouse in its own right? I mean, I would think it has plenty of resources, it has plenty of people, it's got universities and ties with the United States. Maybe I, maybe I just don't know the economic figures, but I would
2: think it seems to be kind of punching below its weight. Is that right? Punching below its weight is actually a great way to put it. the The IMF recently released a report that was discounting the economic catastrophe in Venezuela and still found that Latin America was going to be the slowest growing region of the world. Um, Throughout the next uh, few years, I think growth was predicted to be only slightly more than one percent. So, given the uh, the number of people in the region, um, the you know the cultural ties to the United States, many of the countries have free trade agreements with the United States, close proximity, et cetera, et cetera. You'd expect the region to be, as you said, more of an economic powerhouse. One of the reasons is that historically, there's been a lot of statism in Latin America. A lot of uh, the idea that you know governments can can nurture and incubate and grow. Uh, enterprises, and in, in many countries like Brazil or in Mexico, there are state-owned enterprises that have monopolies on energy, um, on uh, education, on healthcare, care, on, on certain other industries that can be quite productive um, if privatized. A lot of times, populations have shown an inability, as I mentioned, in Argentina to really countenance the, um, uh, the occasional pain that comes along with privatizing or actually opening, opening up one's market. But the other uh, issue is, is productivity, there was an IMF report uh, a little bit before the one that I just mentioned, which said something like uh, the average uh, worker in Latin America produced something like 80 percent um, of what the American worker did in, in 1970, and now it's down to somewhere around 55 percent, if I'm not mistaken. So productivity losses, actually, um, rather than gains. And so, you know, economies are becoming less efficient, uh, less productive. Um, and one of the issues is, is of course, you know education, inequality, uh, corruption— um, and then governments that are unwilling to, to sort of, you know, countenance the pain of, of uh, real economic reforms. So I know one of the things that's been going on in, well, in
1: Latin America, in South America, is this free trade agreement with, is it Mercosur and right. the EU? Mm-hmm.
0: If and what is that, Mercosur? For the listeners.
2: Mercosur is the is and the is the free trade um, sorry the the Union of uh, South American countries which includes Brazil, um, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, and Paraguay okay. um, that negotiate free trade agreements as a as a block. And in past years, previous to the sort of uh, right uh, resurgency in in South America, many, Um, Other blocks that were trying to negotiate with it saw it as sort of an impediment to these negotiations It had become a tool of protectionism under certain presidents. And now, with a different political configuration in the region, at least for now, Mauricio Macri in Argentina, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, it's become more open to to free trade. And so I think it's no um, surprise that we see the conclusion of a 20-year negotiation now at this point in time with the EU deal. Now, if... The Peronists win. What will happen with that deal?
1: Will that will that stay, or do you think
2: they'll pull out of it? So it's largely unclear. It's it's it goes right back into that fold of we don't really know who Alberto Fernandez is uh, as a, as a Peronist, where he where he lies on the on the spectrum. There have been sort of rumblings that okay, you know the the agreement might be at risk, but I think if all of the indications proved prove true that uh, they, they will eventually let the, let the agreement go through, or at least now there hasn't been too much talk about reshaping it very much. Now, some of the European Union countries have been grumbling about renegotiating certain aspects of it for an entirely different reason, because they're very upset about the way Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil is conducting himself, particularly with respect to uh, the preservation of the Amazon, some Uh of his environmental policies, um, and some of his personal sniping at at European leaders like Angela Merkel. The EU seems to be grumbling a lot about (laughs) uh,
0: about renegotiating different trade and uh, Brexit-related agreements. From the U.S. point of view, I'd be of two minds about this, because on one hand, obviously you'd want to extend ties to South America and places like this. But then on the other hand, I read just this week, Argentina's defaulted on its sovereign debt eight times since it became an independent country in 1816. So when places like the US or the IMF or elsewhere see things like that, why do, people, why do they keep lending Argentina, for example, money if they default on their debt all the time? Why can't they get their
2: financial house in order? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it largely comes back to this issue of not wanting to accept the pains associated with, uh, with restructuring. Yeah. The $57 billion IMF loan that happened last year, um, which again was a huge embarrassment to Macri, probably one of the biggest reasons why he did so poorly in um, the election last week, or two weeks ago rather, called for significant structural reforms. Already Alberto Fernandez, the, the candidate for the Peronist Party, is saying we're going to need to renegotiate those terms. And so every time it comes to actually paying back what was lent to it or performing the structural uh, or do, actually implementing the, the structural uh, changes that need to be made in exchange for the loan, Argentina doesn't follow through. Uh, as the IMS rolls as the, as the lender of last resort, they continue giving money to Argentina, but Argentina just doesn't seem to want to uh, to follow through, in addition to which it, it does a lot of things to, to upset private investors, particularly US investors who didn't want to take a haircut during the, the previous recession that I mentioned, that one from 98 to 2002, um, and actually created a full-blown crisis with Argentina, people who weren't willing to accept a haircut. Um, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner started labeling them the vulture funds, fundos butres, people who wouldn't accept a haircut, and, and it went to international arbitration. When you say haircut, that's
0: just paying back less than they expected.
2: That's that the right. investors. Are. Yeah, that's right.
0: If, if Argentina defaults again, if the pronists win, would that are they a big enough economy to kind of plunge the world into the global economy into a recession? Do you think, or would it just be more pain for
2: Argentinians? You know, that's a good question. People are already talking about global headwinds yeah. right now in the economy with Trump's tariffs with with a with a with a trade war going on with China, slow growth in Europe. I think something like an economy as big as Argentina's again, the third biggest in the region behind the powerhouses of of Brazil and Mexico respectively, could do some significant damage to the to the world economy. It is an economy for better or worse that people look to. Um, you know, as a for worse, <laughs> it, it's it's a country of you know forty some million, 44 million people somewhere around there. Big, big landmass, significant uh, and important country in geopolitics, and so you know another default on on an IMF loan could really uh, you know add to the the global headwinds that the the economy is facing now. Well. We'll see. <laughs> the
1: world looks different from the Andes, the A.E.I. where we like tightening our belts a lot. But so, switch tack again. Venezuela, uh, obviously, was all over the news every day for several months, and now it's like we don't really hear about it. Um, what's happening? Is Maduro
2: has he cemented his power, or is there still a hope to get him out of there? One of the reasons why you haven't seen um, Venezuela in the news very much lately is that U.S. policy is stagnant. It's flagging. It seems like a lot of US policymakers are fresh out of ideas. We've decided to go along with um, negotiations that are being brokered by, by, by Oslo, by Norway, but taking place in Barbados negotiations that are secret we really don't know what's going on there we're not party to them but we at least some US officials support them um, and then you know sometimes John Bolton goes on TV and says that uh, these negotiations are going to produce nothing and so it's there's very much a, a stagnancy to US policy and also a lack of coordination that's something that I should also mention too is sometimes you get Elliot Abrams the special representative for Venezuela saying one thing John Bolton or the NSC or President Trump himself saying something completely different in terms of Maduro, I don't think that he has full control over the country. He, he's here to stay for, for the present, but um, I think that there are some major schisms within his ruling coalition. I think there's a reason why he hasn't been able to muster the ability to disband the National Assembly, which is, of course, the only democratically controlled uh, body left in the country. There's a reason why he hasn't been able to touch Juan Guaido, who the U.S. Rep- recognizes as the interim president in Venezuela, I think that we've seen significant authoritarian tendencies out of, out of Maduro. that if he could do that, he would have done it already. Um, because I think um, he knows and he's being told by his Cuban advisors that the U.S. rhetoric that all options are on the table um, is a bluff. The U.S. is not about to use military force in Venezuela. And so if he had the power to, uh, to ar- arrest Guaido, I think he would do it, um, and with impunity. The problem is, I think, that there are schisms within his, within his governing coalition, and he doesn't have the, the ability to do that. And so right now you have what I would characterize as a stalemate. The regime is still in power. They're sort of biding their time with these with these negotiations. They're on again, off again kind of things where the U.S. two weeks ago... Um, on, a, on a Monday night issued an executive order where Trump, you know, em, essentially em, embargoed the country. Um, and the regime again used that as an excuse to pull out of the talks. And then about a week later, the regime went back into the talks. And mm-hmm. so it's this on again, off again charade that's just a, a, a ploy for, for power or for, uh, for further consolidating their ability to rule the country.
0: Maybe Maduro was scared off by that photo of John Bolton when he was walking out of the meeting with the yellow notepad that just said 3,000 troops to Colombia, question mark. 5,000. 5,000, even more. Okay.
2: Yeah. So still... still. Again, uh, not nearly sufficient to do any sort of military operation in a country as expansive uh, as and rural as Venezuela.
0: Yeah. But maybe Bolton, you know, supplies some credence to the whole, like, Nixonian mad dog theory of diplomacy. Like, any, anything is possible. Uh, to switch tack again, another thing we hear about every now and then, just in, like, the pundit sphere is the idea of a Marshall Plan for Central America or a Marshall Plan for Latin America. I'm doing air quotes here for the listeners. Mm. Is that a plausible slash advisable strategy or is that
2: just kind of a trite talking point? So I'm gonna put in a really shameful plug for something I wrote a couple months ago for Foreign Policy called a Central American Marshall Plan. Maybe that won't, oh, won't work. <laughs> it couldn't have been more New direct. Research, it couldn't, couldn't, <laughs> have been, couldn't have been more direct than uh, than that. Uh, and the, the you know the argument was was basically straightforward. It was it was that. Some of the tools for development are already in place in Central America, namely that we have something called CAFTA DR. We negotiated in two thousand and four under President George W. Bush, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, Dominican Republic, and so all of these countries in the so-called Northern Triangle, who are sending many of the migrants to our Southwest border, which is upsetting the president, um, have those those tools in place to have um, economic trade, bilateral trade with the United States. Um, you know, the other uh, the other issue is that um and i argued this in the piece you know i don't think that perhaps outside of el salvador who has a new president now the us has reasonable partners in the region who actually want to make painful reforms to make their countries better in the long run there's massive issues of corruption there's there's massive issues of 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 economic you know lack of productivity security and violence um, and drug trafficking, of course, um, the U.S. just doesn't have good partners in the region. And the one thing that it had with with Europe, in addition to already trying to redevelop developed countries, um, is that they had good partners. They had partners who were interested in good governance. They had partners who, on the whole, were not corrupt. Partners that actually wanted to to grow and make the you know the difficult decisions that are needed to to get get their feet off the ground. And I don't see that in in, in Central America.
0: Yeah. Europe was also bombed half to hell and had, <laughs> and had American soldiers all over it, so that probably helped with the Marshall Plan, I imagine. I mean, well, how how yeah. much time do have? Left? We're probably just I, we should that. probably wrap it up soon. I think,
2: I think that there's there's really... Uh, there's a there's a vast difference between what we're trying to do in Central America and, and the so-called Marshall Plan. I, again, you're trying to redevelop uh, a region that was previously developed as opposed to develop a country that's... Uh, or a region of uh, of the world that's never really been highly developed. And, and so they're very, you know... They're not very analogous terms, but, you know, every time someone on the Democratic presidential campaign says Central American Marshall Plan is the way to go, I get tons of calls from reporters nice. saying, why won't this work? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Seems like a good place to end it. Ryan, thank you for coming back on. Guys, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed, as always, please like and subscribe, retweet, Tinder, Pinterest. Hinge, Bumble. Coffee Meets Bagel, Match.com. <laughs> uh, do whatever you do. If you like the podcast, please share it. Tell your friends. Speaking of somebody who liked the podcast, we got a nice comment here from a guy named supposedly Fredo Pedro Pablo Piedro, who comments: Max Frost is a revelation. Let him inspire you. Let him lift you up from the darkness of your own pitiful existence and into the soft glow of intellectual enlightenment. A plus. I wrote that. <laughs> You never would do that. Uh, Whoever that is. And we certainly have no idea who that is. I, I mean, th- I have eternal thanks for this positive reinforcement. It's a nice pick-me-up after I was lambasted <laughs> by the... By the, Indians. <laughs> by the By some angry Modi supporters on my article last week. Are we allowed to read this
0: comment, though? I, I, I was told that Fredo might be a racial slur to <laughs> Italians.
1: Oh, my God. Don't get me started on that. Have you...
0: Well, wadi- I don't even know if you can talk about this. Intelligently, have you seen The Godfather before? I haven't seen The Godfather. Oh, so yeah, then you can't talk about
1: but, it. But I mean, I've I've seen the vid- the other video. What other video? The Cuomo one.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you're wondering what we're talking about, someone called Chris Cuomo Fredo, I think, and he <laughs> freaked out and said that is the equivalent of
1: the N-word for Italians, I want to say. And then he threatened to beat him up. Did he actually? Yeah, uh, pull uh, well, you can't. <laughs> he I I'm if I recall correctly, he used the F-word in response to him and then said he was going to beat him up. And CNN is like we're standing by him, like whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, As a huge fan of The Godfather, this is just the stupidest possible (laughs) argument. Cuomo is called Fredo because Fredo is the idiot brother in the family (laughs) that does not live up to the father or his brother, Michael. And much like Chris Cuomo is a CNN anchor while his dad and his brother are both governors or one was and one is a governor of New York. So it's not an Italian slur at all. It's like a, a, a brother slur. Like if someone called me Fredo, I'd be offended, but not because... I'm Italian, which I'm not, but because it... it but because
1: you're easily offended.
0: No, I'd be, it'd be offended because they'd be saying that my younger brother is better than I am, which...
1: Well, I don't want to wade here into the which Cuomo, which Cuomo brother is better debate. <laughs> don't have the highest opinions. As a
0: resident New Yorker, I can... True. Well, what's in a better state right now, New York politics or Argentina
1: politics? <laughs> say it's about comparable. Uh, spend like you can, tax like you can, kill your business. Yeah, well, you know, I meant to bring it up in the interview. I'm pretty sure AOC herself, like,
0: retweeted a quote or something from, is it Ava or Evita Perón, one of the Perónes? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, it was was a quote about, like, just being a powerful woman or a a woman in power taking criticism. But she immediately took a bunch of flack because the Perón that she retweeted was like a Nazi sympathizer, essentially.
1: Yeah, so Ryan was saying when we were talking to him after the interview that back in 1994... Either Hezbollah or some other Iranian-connected um, militia blew up a Jewish community home, killing dozens. Um, they just had the 25th anniversary of this in Argentina.
0: Yeah, and the Peronist party is pretty heavily implicated in like not doing anything to really bring whoever committed it to justice.
1: Yeah, some, something I've never I've never understood is just like um, I mean, after World War II and the Holocaust, yeah, all these Germans came and took refuge in. Argentina. Argentina and Brazil, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Argentina
0: is the one that I hear about the most. Yeah. I mean, didn't they find Himmler or someone mm-hmm. in Argentina? There's a movie that, came, that came out about that. Yeah, I think you t- what was it called? Do you know,
1: can't remember. I want to see it though. Look good. Yeah. 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 I don't get. I don't get that. It's not something why they sense. went there. Like of all places. Why? I mean, nice w- climate. what do these Latin American countries have? It's like, first of all, I mean, there's so much stuff. To me, number one priority for any of these countries should be alleviating poverty. Yeah. Right, for their people. Especially like right now in Argentina, I think a third of the people live in poverty. Yeah, And yet at the same time, when you tie in this other stuff, whether it's anti-Semitism or anti-colonial or what, you know, whatever the different thing is, there's so much that these people do to, to derail their own progress. And it seems that's what's going to happen in Argentina again for the umpteenth time. Bad policies, proven bad policies that will have negative impacts on the economy.
0: And yeah. That. I mean, Brett Stevens said that article that he took a bunch of flack for back for the Wall Street Journal a while ago about – I think it was titled "The Disease of the Arab Mind," which you know comes off as pretty bad. but like the, the central point of the article is just that anti-Semitism at root is a conspiracy theory that yeah. something is like nothing is ever your own fault. everything is being done to you by some outside malevolent group, usually the Jews. And I feel like you see this in any country. Any country that just has all this anti-Semitism is rife with conspiracy theories, rife with blame shifting. And it's just no wonder that if, you, if you've got a culture where this is so widely accepted. It's going to be tough to have any lasting reforms if, I mean, accountability is like step number one for a lot of these policies to
1: work. Yeah. Well, I, th- the, I think the whole, uh, obviously, anti-Semitism is a disease of many minds across the world. But I mean, I, have I told you the story of the guy I met in India? I don't know. Um, when I was at this shrine in Delhi a couple of years ago, it was, I believe it's the tomb of one of the people who brought Islam to Delhi. It's a pilgrimage place or Islam to India. It's a pilgrimage place. His He's buried there. Yeah. And I was there, and this guy starts talking to me, um, Indian guy. He was Kashmiri. And he starts saying to me, you know, oh, you're from the U.S. Like, what do you do? And I said I was had just graduated from school with a foreign affairs degree. And he said, oh, foreign affairs, I want to hear what you think about the Jews. <laughs> and he goes off on this whole thing about how 9-11 was a Jewish plot and how the Jews committed 9-11 to get America into Afghanistan because the Jews want to take over Afghanistan. Yeah. And all this whole stuff. I mean, horrible, horrible things. And this is just a random guy. He had an MBA from an Indian school. I mean, it's no, just, I mean this it's, stuff is rampant. This is just a random guy I started talking to. And, like...
0: I know. It's pretty eye-opening, too, when you realize that education itself is, like, not, in, like, vaccine from this type of thi- this type of thinking at all. I remember... I mean, I think we both read The Looming Tower. And yeah. one of the points in that was that a lot of the people that went off to join Al-Qaeda were, like, upper-middle-class educated
1: people. Well, not, not, not only that, I think... It's not just the education's on a cure for it. Education can be the disease on its own. It's like in these textbooks and stuff across much of the Middle East. Yeah, the whole thing is, uh, you know, they get the textbook and in it, it's just talking about the Jews and this kind of stuff. But I mean, so you you traveled? Or, well, I don't, I don't know if you traveled across South America,
0: but you've been you went to Columbia recently. Like, been to Colombia. Is there was there any any random people there asked you about? Like I don't think of I don't think we think of South America as a very anti-Semitic place, though.
1: No, but I do think I do think in some of the countries. That kind of still have this anti-colonial mindset, yeah. you know, invariably that's connected to being anti-Israel and anti, in turn, you know, anti-Jew or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was more struck by when I was there, I, and I meant to ask Ryan about this too, is just
0: like what the property rights situation would be like. Because, I mean, when we when I was I did one of those graffiti tours through Medellin, and there's just all these houses, and there's no I have no idea. There's no semblance of like who owns what if it's all owned by one central landlord and I mean, you hear about these people coming in and implementing the center right agenda of reforms, but one of those has to be defined property rights for, yeah. for it's like a precondition for economic growth. And do, I mean, do you have any idea what that situation situation I mean, is like? I there? mean,
1: to my knowledge, more of what I know about like the slums and informal housing and stuff comes from South Asia. But you know, normally they'll some group of people will claim a, a plot of land. The more people come and claim more land. next thing you know a mountain has been turned into a informal you know city, really. yeah. Um, but that's why like, organized crime is such an issue. Because without property rights, you have to pay somebody to protect your property. Yeah. So, like, I know in Medellin, um, where the whole cities, Mexico City is similar. The whole cities are surrounded by mountains with slums. Yeah. And it's—I mean, it's—it's a—it's a huge issue. How, I mean, how do you enact some kind of reform? How do you protect property rights in a situation like that where there's not even defined property?
0: I know, and you know what that reminds me of? This is how Robert De Niro rose to power as Don Corleone in Godfather Part Two. I mean, this is like—he people—people are paying local gangsters for protection in 1920s New York, and then Robert De Niro eventually, I think, kills the—the the gangster in charge and then sets up his own crime family, and this—and this is how it starts. And that is how you bring a conversation full circle. So with that spoiler, we, we will call it a day. There's a statute of limitations on Godfather. Spoilers. <laughs> All right. See you next week. We'll have Nick Eberstadt talking about North Korea, another crime syndicate, if there ever was one. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Puck
2: wanted it.
0: like everybody says
2: like dumb I'm smart and I want to the-